This is a HeadGum Podcast. This is why, this is why. Pop culture, politics, friendship, dating, work, parenting, news. This is why the podcast. Welcome to the This Is Why podcast. I'm journalist, author, and comedy writer, Laura Lane. And I'm author and editor Angela Sparrow. We are the co-writers of the book, This Is Why You're Single. Every week we give best friend advice on topics including pop culture, news, friendship, dating, workplace dynamics, parenting, and whatever else is on your mind. This week's episode is called Being an Ally. We will be answering your listener questions, including one from a woman of color whose boyfriend's family are Trump supporters, and another listener who wants to know if it's okay to check in on her black coworkers right now. But first, we want to welcome this week's guest. He works at LinkedIn, where he is the co-chairman of the Black Inclusion Group, a program which utilizes data, resources, and employees to close the opportunity gap for Black people in the technology industry. He is also Angela's college buddy. Please welcome to the podcast, Eric Abrego. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It's an honor to be here with uh, both of you. Eric, it's an honor to have you. You are our first uh, guest post-rebrand. You're our first remote guest. This is a very big deal. If I had known back in college that I would be, re- I would be having you as a guest on my podcast remotely because of a global pandemic, I would have been so confused by some things. Can't write this. Can't make it up. <laughs> Can't make it up. But Eric, I'm- did you did you know that Angel was always going to have a podcast? In college, what was she like? I don't think we knew what podcasts were when we were in college. That's that's also true. But I mean, a lot of what you do in terms of giving advice is exactly what it was like in college. <laughs> I mean, just, now it makes sense. More people get to hear it. So that's good. Oh, she was always going around giving unsolicited advice to people. That seems accurate. <laughs> well, I feel like I gave Eric a lot of dating advice, which would have been great for the old show. But this time... This time around, you're actually going to be advising us, and it is an honor to have you on, my friend, uh, because we're doing an episode about allyship, and I'm really excited to get your perspective, because first of all, you've always been one of the most politically engaged people that I've known, uh, and one of the, like, like the night of the 2016 election, I wanted to, to call you and be like, Eric, what's happening? Is this really happening? Um, so, and, and you now have this amazing role at LinkedIn um, where you are the co-chair for their Black Inclusion Group and you've published articles for them on allyship from your perspective as an ally to other people and giving advice to people being an ally. So I feel like you're like, you are the perfect guy to chat with us today. Because I think a perspective like yours is really essential. We're two white women, and we uh, we don't want to we don't want to presume to lead the conversation here. Like we do the work to educate ourselves, but we also wouldn't want to center our voices in this conversation. So it feels good to have you. Appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, the tables have certainly. I've certainly turned. You could definitely could have tell, told me ten years ago or however long ago that was that one day I'd be giving uh, I'd be giving you advice. So I'm happy to be here. Thank you. <laughs> me and so many other people that are listening. You're gonna help so many. Um, but so I want to to have everybody get to know you a bit. So tell us a bit about your background and then how you wound up in your role at LinkedIn. Yeah. So. Um, 
I'm originally from Los Angeles, California. So, you know, I moved to New York um, for college when I turned 18 and um, went home for a little bit, came back permanently and started uh, started working at a tech startup and moved on to a little bit of, uh, spent a little bit of time in finance and then landed this dream role um, um, at LinkedIn. And I started leading the Black Inclusion Group. It's, a, it's an additional role that I have there leading the black inclusion group, the company, which is our employee resource group um, for black people and their allies. And our goal is to help uh, engage our community, you know, get black people hired, uh, keep them at our company and, and ensure that they, that they grow as professionals. So um, it's been a journey and my whole life has taken a lot of twists and turns and, you know, it's made me who I am today and I'm super happy about it. You know, I talk about it, I try to be as candid as possible about it. You know, I didn't have the the easiest life growing up in terms of, you know, uh, the environment in which I grew up in. You know, I'm from South L.A. And, um, you know, my dad did, uh, you know, time in prison, a pretty significant amount of time. So he was gone for the majority of my childhood. And, and you know, I didn't I grow up with my mother. So, I mean, all of that stuff, I say, is because it really shapes you and and. You know, that's why I think of things like this. And I, I like uh, service oriented roles like this. I, I want to give back as much as I can because uh, a lot of people played a role in, in helping me get to where I am. So, yeah, you actually you wrote a little bit for LinkedIn about how you've come to see your story as an important part of your journey. But there was a time when you were embarrassed to share it with people. Um what has what has your experience been like sharing that story specifically with white colleagues? Like, mm. how has that been received? I mean, first and foremost, it's been it's been liberating for me on a personal level because of the fact that I know I've been spending so much of my time suppressing such a not a such a big part of the entirety of myself, mm. uh, all with the intended purpose of fitting in in these primarily white spaces and. I don't know if anybody's ever had to deal with, you know, not being true to themselves, it, but it's, it's, it's taxing. It's mentally taxing. It's physically taxing. And it, it does not make you, um, it does not make you better, but I mean, ha, ha, you know, so first of all, like I said, it's been liberating for me, but in terms of my colleagues, I think a lot of them um, are usually surprised. And I think they're surprised because of the fact that they have their own preconceived notions about what somebody from my background is supposed to look like, act like, sound like. And I dispel all those notions when I walk into a room. And that's not because – but this is just everybody in my neighborhood. We're all intelligent people. We're all well-spoken people. We all have thoughts and, and fears and everything like everybody else. I just have been able to to – end up in some of these spaces where some of my people like me haven't been able to. So it's, it's been jarring for some people when they hear me tell my story, but um, it's, it's the truth. And I, I think that anytime I can help bring light to that, I'll, I'll definitely do it. At, at what point did you start to share your story and realize that it might help other people? Yeah. So I think for me, it was probably when I moved back to New York from LA around 2012. So, you know, Angela knew me, you know, she and I met in college and, and, you know, I was still certainly trying to figure out like, just like anybody in college or any young person, yeah. just still trying to figure themselves out, you know, and you're trying to fit in once again, in these environments that are not 
native to you, if you will, and you're in your in in who you are. So the journey really started after I left college in 2011. When I came back to New York, I found, you know, a bunch of friends that looked like me and that had similar upbringings to me. And being around them really gave me license to be myself and what I really was. So then that's when I kind of started really opening up and telling the truth. Like, hey, look, I'm the son of an ex-felon who did 20 years in prison. Hey, look, I grew up in South LA. You know, hey, look, my house got shot up a lot. Like, you know, all this stuff that not might not be the same as some kid who grew up in, you know, in Connecticut, you know, in a two-parent household and, you know, upper to just middle class. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my friends and having people who share similar backgrounds to you definitely makes you more comfortable in your own skin. So then that's when I started telling that story. Um, and then I know that part of your job or part of being part of the Black Inclusion Group now, you bring in students from underserved communities because I know you work with my friend Ashley, who mm-hmm. <laughs> you guys yeah. have a little networking thing going on. Um, have you shared your story with those students? Do you find that that's something that helps? Yeah, I mean, when I see kids that look like me and they got the same fears like me because they're not sure which way their life might go because we don't have the same safety net, those are the ones I especially gravitate toward. Not so much with my story, but try to be like comforting and try to answer any questions, you know, because I, I think it's more important for them to tell their story. And just the fact, I think there's that natural related relatability, not with everybody, but for a lot of people, you see yourself in these kids, you know, when you see a young uh, black or brown kid from, you know, the Bronx or something like that, you know, like that's a story, you know, seeing them that resonates with me. So, um, of course I tell them the story, but I I always like to hear their stories because I learn a lot from those people. Sounds like part part therapy. Yeah. 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 Right. And I guess like showing people that like, as you've learned, like your story is important to who you are and you should share it and not, not be embarrassed. Yeah. It's because it's a part of your identity. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's your story, but your story is so intertwined to who you ultimately end up becoming as a person. Mm -hmm. So the more you choose to try to intentionally or unintentionally suppress that, uh, the more likely it is you lose sense of, of yourself. And I think that that's to some degree what I was dealing with when I was younger is just trying to fit in in these environments. I was less successful. I was less confident. I was less everything. But once I went ahead and shed it all that, um, I think that's when things really started to pick up for me in a positive way. Yeah. Well, so you, your group, it focuses on closing the opportunity gap for black people in the technology industry. When I think of the tech world, I picture a bunch of white dudes in hoodies, at least Silicon Valley. It's known for being right. very white. So it's, so tell me about how important that is and what the group does and how you do what you do. Yeah. So, I mean, you're not too far off base in terms of the demographics and that's exactly why groups like ours exist Yeah. Uh, to try to, to change that dynamic, to try to bring uh, people in that are more representative of what society as a whole looks like. And that's what our group's goal is to do. That's one part of our goal. Um, we're all about community and, and LinkedIn has certainly given us the, the space to create that community and certainly supported us uh, as an ERG. Um, but yeah, our, our, what we try to do is we want to find talent, you know, the best black talent that we can find out there. We want to nurture that talent, help them grow and learn 
and ultimately, you know, live up to their best, you know, their best professional and best personal self. Um, and a lot of the programming and events that we do as an organization are are aligned to that to those goals. You know, whatever we can do to engage our community, get our community uh, hired and, and growing as professionals, like that's what we're all about. So, you know, I've been in this role for two years and, you know, we do recruiting. Uh, we go do recruiting at big events. Um, and, uh, you know, we do other things like some of what Angela mentioned, like the mentoring sessions. Like that's great for our community to give back to to our brothers and sisters out there that are younger than us and, and you know, in different places. So. Um, so talking, we talked a little bit before about like this whole idea of feeling like you have to assimilate in these white spaces or traditionally white spaces. <clears throat> and it made me think about this whole, the Amy Cooper thing that happened recently here in New York, uh, Amy Cooper. which, oh man, uh, was hard, I think as a New Yorker to watch. Um, and there was a lot of press afterwards um, about Christian Cooper because everybody was like, oh, my God, he's so cute and sweet and he's so nerdy. He's a birder. How could she be afraid of him? And that that dialogue was kind of problematic in itself because it was like, well, she shouldn't have she lied. She shouldn't have reacted matter, that way yeah. no matter who that person was, exactly, no matter yeah. how he acted, no matter how she, you know, whatever her perception of scary would be. So and that speaks to this idea that there's this like whole other layer and pressure for black men to present in a certain way so as to not seem you know scary or, or just like fit a certain uh stereotype that white people are comfortable with like do you have you do you feel like that's affected you at all and how you feel like you have to act in certain spaces oh absolutely absolutely i mean i think that you know and i think you're right you know, that that kind of narrative is problematic in and of itself because it almost denies your humanity uh, unless you are, uh, in the case of Christian Cooper, a uh, member of Audubon Society who graduated from Harvard. But, <laughs> yeah. you, you know, it, it's it's not it's not uh, the same level of humanity that's afforded to people, other people, which is unfortunate. You know, I just finished watching a documentary uh 13th which is funny like i've i've seen this you know it's so relevant to my own life and everything how the system uh affects all of us but yeah i'm, I'm about 4 years late on that um uh, but that's that's one critical piece of that of that documentary is how this narrative you know with movies like birth of a nation um really started perpetuating this idea that black men are prone to criminality that black men are prone to violence and and and, and you know sexually predatorial and, and all these really negative things that have stuck and in turn like you know you end up in a situation where someone thinks they can weaponize that um and i i mean you do feel that you do feel that when you walk into a store despite the fact that you have money to pay for any number of things in the store you know you still got to be careful you know i got to take my hood off when i'm here or I can't walk too close to this white woman that's walking in front of me because she's nervous. You know, the, the, those are things that you kind of learn to deal with. But those are like those microaggressions that really take a toll on you mentally. And those never get easier. They never get easier because it's not it's not on you. It's on the other person to be OK with you. But that's unfortunate because your humanity is decided by somebody else. 
So we're doing this episode on allyship because of the the recent protests over police brutality, which has led to a larger cultural conversation about equality and racism in America. What has this moment been like for you? Does this moment feel different to you or you know, do you worry that it, everyone will lose focus and move on before creating real change? Yeah, so I mean the three the last 3 months for me as just as just a ERG leader, you know, as a, a, the the co-chair of the Black Inclusion Group have been, you know, particularly, you know, interesting because of the fact that just like the onslaught of like really negative things, you know, acts of terrorism committed against black people, you know, Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd and all this stuff. And we've been doing so much as an organization to ensure that we support our members who are hurting, you know, mentally, but also just like that we're doing uh, we're bringing light, you know, light to what's going on. Mm-hmm. But the Ahmad Arbery was like, was bad, and that one really was really it was it was really terrible. But then the George Floyd one, that's when you know everything really really felt different. And I've been using this phrase: the ground is shifting beneath our feet. And I think that that's what I feel every single day. And I and I, I you know it's unfortunate. I don't think George Floyd signed it to be anybody's martyr. But nonetheless, you know, his 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 murder really helped, you know, lead to this moment in which we're in. You know, we've never seen as a country this level of uh, this this rapid shift in public opinion. You know, mm-hmm. we've never seen this rapid, um, you know, action when it comes to policy and policy proposals. And we've never seen this kind of reckoning for you know, law enforcement before. So this does feel different because you got this confluence of things and you just feel like the, the ground is shifting and it's all in the, with the, with the, with coronavirus as its backdrop. And I think that that's also factored into it. Yeah. It's fascinating. Distracted. And they, and I mean, as sad as it is, a lot of people, they have lost their job. And so they can put all of their energy and time into something outside of themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I also think, People are so angry and this, I mean, seeing the way the federal government's response to coronavirus has definitely jaded some people's uh, trust that there are people out there, you know, because as a white person, uh, you spent more time thinking like, well, somebody's looking out for me. There's like, they have my best interest at heart. And I think maybe it's been an awakening across the board that, like, no, nobody really cares about any of us. Like, if somebody in a, mm-hmm. an authority position, they they didn't get there because they're a good person or, you know, because they're the smartest person. Well, yeah, I mean, you've talked about – I don't know anybody that has become a cop, but you talked about you knew some people becoming cops well, and you're yeah, like, they're a, the last people that – Absolutely. It's, I mean, it's a – big thing on Long Island for for people to become cops and to have this like you know giant cop boner even if you're not a cop just be like <laughs> a fan of cops um and like the people that I yeah the people that I know personally that became cops are people that were openly racist people they mm. are people that that mm. I would not want to have a gun let's put it that interesting way. um yeah that's horrifying so yeah, there definitely needs to be a reckoning. Or there needs to be uh, some thought put into how, who who gets those roles and 
what those roles are and how they are treated. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's interesting. I, that's, that's something that obviously I wouldn't know personally, but I think that that's quite telling. What yeah. you just said about some of the most racist people you knew growing up on Long Island were the people who ended up becoming cops. And that, that ended up, that, that's pretty telling. Yeah. Right. You know, because in one regard, you know, a lot of people, black people and other minorities, when they bring these same, you know, very real cases of, of racism committed by police officers and stuff to, to people's attention, they're always dismissed. So it's kind of, you know, hearing you say that it's like validating a lot of things, and a lot of things that people think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, I guess it's, a, it's definitely a form of gaslighting for anybody to say any different. Uh, but I also think that well, a because lot of the white person, you're not gonna, you, I, you, you'd feel safe. You know, like I, I was going 90 miles an hour one time singing, like I had like over the rainbow blasting and I, and the cop and the, there was a cop trying to with the set. I didn't hear it because I was blasting somewhere over the rainbow and just singing at the top of my lungs. He had been following me for miles. And when he pulled over, he's like, why didn't you stop? But I was just you're like, I'm not, I wasn't, I would never. You weren't was, looking over your shoulder. I wasn't looking because over my shoulder. Well, and I wasn't scared. I wasn't scared when I got pulled over. Right. You know? I was like, I can talk my way out of this. Right. You know? And that's, that's a problematic thing that I can like feel that way. You know? Yes. I will also say back to that whole idea of like that, that, you know, a lot of openly racist people that I know uh, have become cops. I also think the reason that this whole gaslighting thing is is able to happen is those people also would be the first people to be like, I'm not racist. And also, mm-hmm. there's no such thing as systemic racism. So, like, people can mm-hmm. be really racist and mm-hmm. not think that it's even a thing that exists. And that's how they're able to be like, I'm one of the good ones. You know, that's, like, crazy. Um, so like they don't even believe it. So for somebody else to bring it to to their attention, I don't know. I don't know. Well, I think it's because they that don't goes have to a show you how how systemic it is, right? Yeah. Because of the fact that something is so normalized to to a point where you think that anybody who calls that out or says like, "Hey, this doesn't look right," is actually weird, and you, you are not even conscious of it. You know, it's like blinking. You don't know how many times you blink a day, but nonetheless, you do because it's a natural body function. It's like, you know, racism um, is no different. Systemic racism. You don't even know you're doing it, but it's happening and you're, you know. And it's a spectrum. And I think you don't have to be a member of the KKK to be racist and to do Mm -hmm. racist things. And I think that's the problem is that if you tell somebody that they're doing something racist, they they picture i'm you know what are you talking about like i i'm not a member of the you know and it's well amy it's cooper a, voted, it's a spectrum you know, yeah amy cooper she that voted was a racist liberal yeah exactly they, they came to, and like a lot of the people right now who are yep. getting quote unquote canceled are are people who otherwise have been seen as like liberal people leading up to this um well meaning liberals well meaning liberals who just yeah racism was so baked in like microaggressions so baked into the way they operate in daily life. And now we have all these old tweets being resurfaced Mm -hmm. and and stories from colleagues. And, and I think that some of the people getting called out are just as surprised as everyone else. They're like, Oh wow. I, I was problematic and I had no idea. Yeah. 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 I've got a couple of apology DMS and, and, and text messages over the last couple weeks you know, from people who are they're trying to atone for 
things that they might have said or done in the past that they didn't know was, you know. But once again, it shows you just how deep this stuff is. People who think they're being like, you know, their comments are benign are in fact, you know, really perpetuating a lot of this really negative and terrible stuff. How have those messages made you feel? Because I find that really interesting because I've seen a lot of the activists that I follow saying that they they really don't want it. They don't want to hear. They don't want to um, like. Like, I don't need to hold your guilt type of thing, you know, so by apologizing, they almost want your acceptance of their guilt and for you to tell them it's okay. I'm not mad. You're a good person. Mm -hmm. I forgive you. And you're not responsible to, to do that or to hold somebody else's guilt. So I'm curious how you feel about those, those messages. Like, are they appreciated? Are they more burdensome? Because, um, I've just been trying to understand this and hearing different, different things of different people, have different feelings on receiving those apology messages. Yeah. Yeah. No, I hear you. And, and I don't have a firm position on it. I think it depends on the person that's doing it, you know, because I certainly hear you uh, and, and those activists who say stuff like, you know, I don't want to hear, I don't want to hold your guilt because essentially once again, it puts them back in this position of power, right. Where it's almost, you know, you're giving you some kind of, implicit ultimatum to to make things right with them and and help them feel better about themselves i'm not here to do any of that i'm not here i don't think it's any of our jobs also to educate other people yes about you know the things that they've done that are terrible you know um and and yeah no so i think that that's uh that yeah it depends on the person who who has said it because some things are way more egregious than others sometimes things are quite literally just ignorance and somebody didn't know something and other and, and they're atoning for stuff that maybe they don't have to uh whereas other people it's like that that's pretty terrible and that was something that you deliberately you know you made a decision to do um uh, i've met them all um but yeah no so i it, once again for me it depends on the person i understand both perspectives on it but i think a lot of what it is right now is it's you know black people in america have been dealing with so much trauma as a result of terrorism against it for no reason and it's passed down for so many generations and so many people and that's why i'm just so proud of like you know just black people as like a race and just just the resilience and the face that like washington 13th really really put so much in perspective um and it's like you can't keep giving this group of people this burden to bear you know, you have a system that's bearing down on 13 percent of the population who actually built a significant portion of this country by hands, whether it be the White House, you know, and created the economies in the South. And and now, you know, we have to we have to be recipients of the apology tour. And it's our jobs to educate other people when you're only 13 percent of the population. It's 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 tiring and it's taxing and a lot of people are, are don't want to have to do that work and they shouldn't have to do that work because it's not on them to explain the terrible things that a system has done to them. Have you written back to every person that's written you? <laughs> Absolutely not. No. Good for you. I mean, the timing sort of like, do you feel like they were genuine apologies or does the timing just render them? Yeah, so that's I I love that. I love that. I love what you just said at the end of that question. The timing is why you don't want to open any of these messages. 
you know, because it's almost like you didn't know this stuff was happening, like up until the news media told us it was happening and social media did a blackout and all this. But the fact of the matter is we've been living with this pain. I've been visiting prisons every day for 20 years. Mm -hmm. You know, I've heard the stories of my dad, you know, getting beat up by cops when he was a kid for no other reason. You know, then he was going to go pay a bill with some money that my grandmother gave him when that was okay to do. And they would take the money and stuff like that. So for me, the reason why one situation doesn't affect me more than another, because it's unfortunate, but me and a lot of black people are so desensitized by all this stuff. We've seen this stuff. You know, I I have an uncle who's been shot 13 times by an off-duty cop. Mm -hmm. I know this stuff so personally that you can't show me one case and tell me it's more egregious or, or, or jarring for me than the other. So when someone chooses a date to, to all of a sudden uh, wake up, that's not my journey. That's your journey. You know, I've already internalized a lot of this. And fortunately enough, I've been able to harness that energy into something more positive. Whereas other people, in no fault of their own, that energy has led them down some, some terrible paths. Because that's what terrorism does to a person. It leads them to 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 act out in, in in ways that they otherwise wouldn't. But that's what happens when a system is bearing down on you so hard for so long. Being that this episode's about allyship, is there a time in your life that someone was an ally to you in a meaningful way, or or a time when someone really failed you? Is there just a specific moment that either way sticks out to you? Oh man, no, I can't even. Because if somebody listens to this, you're like, "Why didn't you say me?" Um, <laughs> no, just, just there are so many people out there, allies. If if that's if that's the term we want to use, I call them friends. I call them mentors. I call them people who care, um, who've played a role in in helping me get ahead. You know, whether it was directly hiring me, whether it was was opening up their home for me to take a, you know, to take the, an LSAT test, you know, one weekend in their town. Like there's so many people who like, who represented what it just means to be a good human. You know, they just happen to not be a black person. Right. They, so we call them allies, but nonetheless, these are people that were living the values in which we all hopefully, you know, that people are fighting for today. Can we just see people as human? Can we not deny this person an opportunity? So Anyway, I mean, there have been so many allies, so many people who have like just made me everything that I am and that I, that I am today and have helped me so much. I find it, I like that you're kind of pointing out the weirdness of the word ally. And can you, yeah, well, it's kind of, it, you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of as a woman when you're, you know, like when I used to see men self identify as um, like a fem- male feminist male feminist or like feminist mm-hmm. and like put it in their, bio or put it in their dating profile and i'd be like can't we just assume that that's like the lowest Mm -hmm. of low bars so for you to have to point it out it's like hmm um and (laughs) yeah (laughs) now yeah like it'd be weird to be like i'm i'm an out like you wouldn't put i'm an ally in your but a lot of people do now and i think that it's done with good intentions it's like you know it's like this profile is a safe space so I'm I'm self-identifying as an ally or, you know, mm. I'm thinking about it in terms of online because now we all live online during coronavirus, I guess. But <laughs> <laughs> but in real life, too, it happens, I guess. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, I guess maybe, like, it's naive of me to assume good intentions. But I do think people do it because they want to be like, I'm a good one. 
I'm a good one. Like, I'm a feminist, she, her ally. Right. And, uh, but yeah, sometimes it definitely feels like overcompensating and it's like, can't you just do the thing without it yeah. becoming a label? Yeah. But I don't know. And I don't know the answer. Yeah, I don't know the answer either. I don't know the answer. I just find it, I do, I find it interesting that, yeah. that there is like a, a weirdness to having to say you're an ally instead of that. Formalizing just, it. Yeah, formalize it instead of just it be the norm, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. No, I hear you. That makes a lot of sense. And that's kind of, it kind of follows the same line of thinking as someone reaching out to you on a specific date about, you know, to, to apologize, mm-hmm. right? It almost feels dutiful, you know, and it, it strips the humanity from it. And it's almost like something you have to do. So when you give it an official badge, I could, the, the sentiment very much aligns to that in, in my brain, at least. Yeah. All right. We're going to continue this conversation more later on in the podcast. But next up, we are going to jump into our mailbox and have Eric help us answer some questions. First, we're going to take a very quick sponsor break. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Squarespace. Guys, make it yourself. Easily create a website all by yourself. If you can think it, you can dream it, you can make it with Squarespace. Squarespace is like our original sponsor. I also just love them because I we were using them like Back in 2013, before it was cool, way before it was cool, because I first heard about them from a guy named Alex Baldwin, who I I love telling the story because I thought I was tweeting at Alec Baldwin. (laughs) Don't ask me why I was tweeting at Alec Baldwin. I don't remember why, but I accidentally tweeted at Alex Baldwin. And then Alex Baldwin was like, hey, I'm not Alec Baldwin, but like, hi, also checked out your website. You like you need a new one. And then we started messaging and I became friends with Alex Baldwin. And he was like, You should try out. There's this new service called Squarespace. And I was like, Do I have to build my website all over again? He's like, Yes, but the one you're using is like not good. Um Alex Baldwin was like the original influencer. <laughs> and that's how I found out about Squarespace. That is how I freaking found out about Squarespace was Laura Lane was trying to tweet at Alec Baldwin back in the day. It's the perfect meet cute. <laughs> For a person and a website. <laughs> and but I was like very hesitant at first. I was like, I don't wanna have to like upload my whole gallery again. He's like, just do it. And well, then we, and then I finally did and I'm obsessed. I and know. There's like so four easy. websites later. Four girl. I've done like <laughs> I create so many websites. Lauralane.com, nicklovesLaura.com, uh this is why the podcast.com, uh, feministfairytalesbook.com. And then I've created some other ones just for fun that are not live. <laughs> so listen, we might not be as cool as Alex Baldwin, but you could take our advice the same way he gave Laura advice all those years ago. Squarespace is where it's at. If you want to build a website, uh, they have beautiful templates created by world-class designers. They have everything optimized for mobile right out the box. So it's going to look just as good on your desktop as it does on your phone. And if you ever get confused while building your website, they have 24-7 award-winning customer support. Check out squarespace.com slash single for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code SINGLE to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. All right, Angela, what do we have in the mailbox? Okay, first up, we have a question from our listener who identifies herself as liberal woman of color in Trump country. So you know this is going to be a rough one. Okay, so this is what she writes. She says, hi, ladies and Eric. Uh, Love the podcast and have been listening for years. I have a question I need your help with. 
I've been dating this guy for almost two years. We are pretty serious and are thinking about moving in together for a few months, but I have some concerns. He's very close with his family and his summer community where he grew up. Um, However, a lot of these people are really conservative and Trump supporters. As a woman of color, it makes me uncomfortable and mad. My boyfriend is moderate and thinks Trump is an idiot, and we talk about politics because it's very important to me. However, I'm pretty sure his brother, who he currently lives with, is a huge Trump fan. I like that she put Trump fan as, like, one word, not separate words. Like Like, the 90s film swim fan? Yeah, like like, that is who he... Yeah, it's like Superman, or Superman might be two words. Anyways, she wrote Trump (laughs) fan as one word, I'm pretty sure on purpose. Well, he's a huge Trump fan. Uh, And some of the things he says seem pulled straight out of an alt-right website. Part of me thinks my boyfriend talked to his brother about cooling it with the politics, but he's a true pain in the ass and casually sprinkles in alt-right propaganda into conversations every once in a while. Since I'm a woman of color, a part of me feels like I'll never feel comfortable in this community that he loves. I feel like he, like right now he's somewhat sheltering me from family members and people in his community who are super conservative. But if we get married, uh, he won't be able to do that forever. It seems silly to break up with him over this, and I don't want to pull him out of the place that he loves. But I don't know if I can handle these people for the rest of my life. What do I do? Mm. Eric, do you have any thoughts on this? <laughs> that's uh, That's a... First of all, that's that's unfortunate. You know, she has to feel that way and that she has to even, you know, worry about stuff like that. But I mean, that's the reality for a lot of people, uh, a lot of black people and a lot of a lot of minorities for that matter. Um, I think that that's a conversation that she's going to have to have. Uh, with her with her significant other I think it's going to have to be one of those situations in which they decide whether or not their value systems align you know because um, if some of what she's saying is, or what she's saying is, is true that's uh, that's super unfortunate and it goes back to what I was saying earlier about it not that burden not being on you to try to educate yeah. these people so I'm not sure what she would do if she met these people she's supposed to dispel some notion about you know black people as a result of her presence and and prove to the world that she is like somehow uh not this bad person that that's a that's an unfortunate situation to be in so i think there's you know she probably needs to sit down and have a conversation with her boyfriend about whether or not um you know is it maybe it's it's her or his family and his community and sometimes it that's that's the that's the ultimatum sometimes is is some cho- some hard choices need to be made you know um it's not it's not uncommon for people to have parents and things like that that their value systems don't align and sometimes the kid or the parents they walk away from the situation um so yeah no i would i would think they'd have to sit down and and, and have some conversation about some hard choices because it sounds like some really really hard choices especially as they're thinking about um getting more like you know taking this relationship further yeah, I wish I, I had more to say. No, I mean, yeah, you feel uncomfortable enough meeting your boyfriend or significant other's family. It's not up to her to have to. Yeah, the burden should not fall on her. The burden should fall on him to protect her, and make sure that she feels 100 percent comfortable in any situation. Yeah. And that starts with him, hopefully recognizing that this is a legitimate issue and not just like 
dismissing it, which I mean, I don't know. It sounds like she says he told them to cool it. So I don't know. That doesn't seem like a baby step. To be honest. Um, Yeah, that doesn't seem like enough to me. The one thing that I do want to point out, because she says it seems silly to break up with him over this. It's not. It's not. And I think that. Yeah. Uh yeah, you shouldn't um you should listen to your feelings and uh if this isn't making you feel good and you're talking about marriage and stuff like don't invalidate this experience. Don't invalidate this experience and don't invalidate the idea of people's families. Like obviously you are not your family. So all of us have family mm-hmm. <laughs> we wouldn't want to be judged by, you know? But uh you are going to have to be around them a lot. And well, and it way- sounds like he's close to them. I yeah. think that's a big thing. Like you can date somebody with a crazy ass family and they might not be close with them and they might say like, oh, my family's a little crazy. Like, don't worry. Like we go, you know, once a year <laughs> yeah, <laughs> kind of yeah. thing. But it sounds like he's pretty close with them. And right. so, and that's the thing. If that, he's that close, does matter. If you both are removing yourself from the situation, that's one thing. But it sounds like he's having two lives right now. Like he's having his racist life with this racist family and then he's, he's keeping you away from them and like being with you. And that's like, it's like, where are his values? Because if he's okay hearing those them say these things when you're not around, like... Did you... You wrote her back a, a quote, right? Well, this is the quote that I always... Because there's always people like, oh, we have to like shake hands across party lines and like all be friends and hug. And the quote that I always come back to with that is the James Baldwin quote where he says... We can disagree and still love each other unless your disagreement is rooted in my oppression and denial of my humanity and right to exist. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a good thing to remember. It's like, sure, Mm -hmm. you can like, like we're not the things that you are disagreeing about. You're not saying I like the Yankees and you like the Mets, you know, like what we're talking about is like you're you as a human on this planet. Yeah. So keep in mind, it's okay to. Walk away from a situation like that when your humanity is being denied. All right. What else we got in the mailbox? Um, Okay. This one is from Elle. And Elle writes, hi, guys. It's important to me to be a good ally right now, but I think sometimes I overthink things and then I don't take any action at all. For example, I wanted to check in with a black coworker this week. This is written um, during the height of the protests. Um, I wanted to check in with a black coworker this week and see how she had been holding up but then I saw lots of discussion about how white people were having no chill blowing up their black friends' phones and emails, so I didn't do it. Should I have done it? What is helpful and what is just plain annoying? So this is – we talked a little bit about people apologizing like before, but this is more somebody just wanting to check in and be like, I guess, are you okay or, you know, whatever. Uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, so <laughs> that one's really interesting. Um, because it's something that I've been seeing happening a lot and I've heard a lot of black people, uh, that I've spoken with, whether it be like, you know, where it's just, that's been common where all of a sudden there's just this influx of, are you okay? Do you want to talk messages? Right. Almost like once again, it's like, there's a, this, this moment where like, you know, that's like, you know, where the world changed, um, Here's my advice to that person would be do less of that and do more work. Right. And I think doing more work is to the previous question in that scenario is calling out your racist family members, 
calling out systems of oppression when you see bad things happening, calling out your friends who might be saying stuff or doing stuff that is, you know, quite frankly, racist. I've let, I've let in my past life, people get away with things that I certainly wouldn't let them get away with today. And I think that's a lot of what, what happens. It's, it's, that's one piece of it. But once again, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier around like a checkbox kind of deal. Hey, are you doing okay? Okay, fine. I feel great. I did that. And no, this is like a journey. You have to, you have to stay on this journey. And the journey is a lot more than one conversation. It's not only, it's not even multiple conversation. It's action. You know, it's educating yourself. It's reading. And it's, it's really, it's a new muscle for a lot of people. So my advice would be, you know, um, if you do reach out, just let them know you're here to talk if they need to, and that you stand with them and that you are doing the work and that things, you know, you're going to help make this better um, to the degree to which you can. I mean, I think that's the extent of it, but that's my own personal opinion. Calling and checking in with people and, hey, how you doing? You know, assume right now that every black person is getting that a lot right now, you know? Um, and that's just too many conversations to have because it, once again, it just becomes like a burden again, where it's like, you have to explain and relitigate this and think about all this and relive for a lot of people, a lot of trauma. If you have 10 people asking you how you feel about the George Floyd situation, well, listen, I feel, I feel like it's terrible and I have to keep reliving this. And don't you feel like, I mean, with your friends or coworkers, co-workers who you're close to who are not black uh who are like who you would consider real allies or whatever we're calling them real friends uh don't you think part of having a relationship with somebody is having this having been an ongoing conversation from the start yes. like yes. if it's i feel like that's the like if people are questioning should i reach out to this person it's like well have you talked about this with them before mm. because you should have been right like isn't that Part I love of that. Having a friendship that's, with somebody—that's so true. <laughs> that is so true. I didn't even think about that, but yes, if you feel uncomfortably approaching the subject, maybe you're not as close as you thought you were. Yeah, and, and I maybe think, you weren't having those conversations. I think white people feel uncomfortable sometimes talking about race and, and engaging with the idea of race because they don't want to say the the wrong thing. But I think a big part of that and a big problem is so many of us were brought up with this like be colorblind don't see race so like to acknowledge race would be like impolite because we're all the same but I think like what that does is it erases people's identities and and mm -hmm. that's not good either so you gotta you gotta like when something terrible happens because lots of terrible things have been happening for a long time now you mm -hmm. have to think about how that's affecting your friend because it's yeah. affecting them differently than it's affecting you. So if you care about somebody, yeah, like I guess you should have been engaging with this for a long time. Yeah. And I think that's a good point you raised around the colorblind piece. It's, it's uh it's a common trope you hear, you know, it's like a defense shield for a lot of people. It's the, it's yeah. the all lives matter of, of defenses, yes. you know? Um, but yeah, the 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 reality of it is we are all people, and we we look the way we are, and we do, and and that's the that's that's what it is. Yeah, I mean, I definitely feel guilty in not knowing how to engage with 
some of my friends, like some of my mom friends, we talk about mom stuff together. Like mm-hmm. how's potty training going? And is your baby sleeping throughout the night? And then while this has all been going on, I've been been reading uh, one of my mom friends Twitter or Instagrams and she posted about how at the end of each week she talks with her nanny about any of the racist incidents that happened with her daughter and that like that is a motherhood issue and it completely broke my heart and it's something that I I don't know I we live in like our little pocket of like what I thought was like liberal Brooklyn. like I can't imagine you should put like on the on the playground they have to talk about all the incidents that happened on the playground and um but every relationship is different, I guess. And that's why it's so awkward, I think, particularly with the coworker thing, because people, for some white people, I think that like, oh, the only black person I know is like this black person at work, so I need to reach out to them. But you don't have that relationship. You're like being overly familiar with somebody who like you could have taken the time to get to know them and have them over to your home and like be friends outside of work, but you kept your relationship purely professional and now you're trying to be like – right overly familiar um at, at an odd time and it's yeah it's the timing is suspect yeah yeah and, and and to that it's it's your intention behind it right and i don't think a lot of people are conscious of that but it's like really what is your intention behind that you know and and some people really do think that they're honestly doing something good but dig a little deeper and it's probably not that it probably goes back to what we we're saying earlier around just duty you know now you feel like this is something you have to do is to make yourself feel better and um that shouldn't that certainly shouldn't be the case if that's the reason why you're doing it that you're doing it for all the wrong reasons it goes back to you know what we talk about you know virtual signaling and when people post something on instagram it's like see i did that one good thing and i think i'm okay now right um it, it all falls in the same bucket. It's very performative. Um, but this is learning something new, just like learning anything new, you know, riding a bike, driving anything. It's like there are mistakes. It's uncomfortable. But the only way you get better at it is by practicing at it. And it's no different when you're having these uncomfortable conversations on a race. Like you've got to move out of your comfort zone. Mm-hmm. And that means like you can't – you. You just you got to move out of that zone and that's how you're going to get better as a person and understand these issues better and and really start to see your own growth as a person on these issues. And on that note, it brings us to our reason of the week. First, we're going to take a very quick sponsor break. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Care Of. Care Of is a wellness brand that makes it easy to maintain your health goals with a customized vitamin plan that helps you feel your best today and supports you long-term. I love them because I just don't have to have a bunch of different like random vitamin bottles that when I travel, even just every day, I just open my cute little packet, pop it in my mouth, good to go. Yes. And the really cool thing about Care Of that I'm excited about is they have their new line for skin and hair. So even if you don't care about your health at all, if you care about looking good, they have vitamins for you. The new skin and hair collection helps you work on your beauty goals from all angles with a combination of targeted ingredients for hair, skin, and nails. Um, Care-of is focused on the quality, science, and research that goes into each of their products and recommendations. You take their short online quiz and answer some questions about your diet, health goals, and lifestyle, and Care-of will recommend a list of vitamins and supplements specifically for your health needs and goals. 
Love it. For 25% off of each of your first three months of... 25% off each of your first three months of care of go to takecareof.com slash this is why 25 and enter code this is why 25 that's 25% off each of your first three months of care of uh, go to takecareof.com slash this is why 25 and enter code this is why 25 we'd like to thank our sponsor Coors Light Summer it is without a doubt that summer will look a bit different this year festivals weddings and just brunching with friends, all seem like things of the past. But just because our plans might change doesn't mean our summer is canceled. Right, Angela? In fact, because a lot of things like, oh, I don't know, weddings are canceled, I'm drinking quite a bit more. Okay, let me just cut to the chase of why we like Coors Light. Did you know that you can have it delivered by going to get.coorslight.com and finding local delivery options near you? Sorry, that's like what I'm supposed to say at the end of the podcast, but I just want to, or end of the, this little ad, but I just want to cut to the chase. We're going to tell you why we love Coors Light, but you can order it really easily online. Okay. Tell us why you like Coors You don't Light. have to go anywhere. I agree. It's amazing. Um, so it's a mountain cold refreshment that's made to chill. Coors Light is brewed with a three-step cold process, cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. So it's actually made to chill. <laughs> Both. <laughs> I'm laughing because once I made to do this ad by myself, and I said made to chill like 20 times. But but I'm not laughing because I really do like Chris Light because they they are made to chill because they literally literally no because they have I think they have like they 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 really are like the actual bottle is made to chill. Yes. Okay, sorry. I, I mean, it's, I think it's you know it's a play on words. It's like you're chilling while you're drinking it, but no, it's really cold. We cannot emphasize enough how cold your beer is going to be when you drink it. Okay, okay. This is what I liked about. It. Okay, both the mountains. This is actually cool. Okay, this is what I was looking for in the ad read. Both the mountains and the sunglasses on new limited edition summer cans turn blue when they're chilled to perfection. Okay, so born in the Rocky Mountains in Colorado, 1978, Coors Light is refreshing, Chris, and only 102 calories. Okay, whatever. I don't care about that. What I care about is that the can turns a different color when it's the right temperature. That's cool. I don't know. I know I'm like in my 30s now, but it's I'm cool. still like a little kid chill? where I like when like things turn colors. Yeah. When they're like a different temperature, you had like one of those magic pens. It makes drinking also a fun activity. Yeah. Um, but that's why it's made to chill. The cans are special. All right, guys. That's why Coors Light is the one that I choose when I need a moment to chill. So when you want to reset the summer, reach for the beer that's made to chill. You can have Coors Light delivered by going to get.coorslight.com and finding local delivery options near you. One last thing, a little note from legal. I need to include celebrate responsibly. This should be obvious. Just be smart. Uh, Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. This week's topic is being an ally. That's right. White people tend to have a bad habit of burdening black people with educating them on how to be an ally rather than doing the work themselves. Um, we definitely did not want to recreate that pattern here. At the same time, we felt we had this platform. We wanted to uplift voices who have been doing the work rather than our own. Eric, you talked a bit about 
social media and we've it's kind of been a loose thread throughout this conversation and I found the activity on social media to be like very interesting on the positives I've been introduced to information that's been educating or helpful in terms of these are the protests happening these are the vigils happening uh these are some some books you can buy your child these are some books you can read uh stuff that I a lot of the work that that I I thought I had been doing and very quickly realized I had been not not been doing enough of. Um, on the other end, uh, some of it can feel like like virtue signaling. I recently I, I am not big on Twitter very much. I opened Twitter the other day and saw that I was like tagged in a post by one of my like white male friends that was like I'm tagging five friends that need to repost this and tag other five friends to you know, do this thing. And I was like, this is not the kind of social, I don't want this like chain letter of engagement. Like I ignore that when it's a recipe exchange. I like, what were they sharing? Fair, uh, so they were, try, uh, it was, I don't remember. It was, uh, I'll look it up right now. Um, it, it was something I'm sure like very good, like a good cause, but like, like the chain letter approach to it felt so like bizarre to me. And like, like, Force that I was like, what? Like, let me do my own posting and like my own work without like you tagging me to do it. Like from this yeah. like white, do- it, it was something to a. Uh, it was Attorney General, uh, you know, for Breonna Taylor. Like all, like yes, I agree with everything. Do I? Do I like that? You, do you like tag this like chain letter approach? It's all very. The social media aspect of this is very weird. I'm curious what activism on social media you've found to be meaningful in terms of engagement and what you have found to be less so. Um, For me, I think when I think of engagement on the positive side is people who I've seen a lot of people, I've seen websites that were once gossip sites, uh, turn their whole model on its head and really turn um, into educating people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a big part of it, is bringing light to a lot of these issues. I think that's how we're even in this moment that we're in, you know, in part because a lot of the work of our of of our forefathers and foremothers and like this this fight for civil rights, but also more recently, once again, things like movie Thirteenth um, really has played a big role. And I've I've been educated a lot by even a lot of the stuff I've seen on social media, and I think that's a big component of it. Um, you know, if you have a big platform out there, you know, using it to amplify black voices is a good way to go about, you know, really showing up, uh, in the right way. And I think it's, we all know probably what's, what's bad. Right. And I think right off the bat, it's, it's that it's, it's things like you name, you know, um, you know, chain letters and things that you do to maximize eyeballs, but for the wrong reasons. Right. Or things that you do to fit in, you know, or to like I, show your friends, you're like a, you're like to a, show your friends, yeah. the, the blackout Tuesday, which had a really big effect on a lot of people, you know, and, and, um, and just, you remember scrolling through our feed when that whole thing on Instagram, when that, when that was happening that day, but then for a lot of people, that was literally like, you know, that was their, that, this is my duty. This, I did yeah. this one thing and, and that's it. And then you go look at the rest of their feed and you're like, oh, look, you went right back to normal. So that's an example of, of, of uh, her mentality, um, doing it for all the wrong reasons, very vacuous gestures. That's not good. It's bringing, uh, it's educating people. 
It's amplifying voices that are marginalized. And it is using your platform for good to raise these issues. Like those are, in my opinion, like the right ways to use social media. And that's the way I try to use it, like on LinkedIn and stuff like that. I want to raise money for organizations that are fighting for social justice. You know, I wrote I wrote a post on LinkedIn last week or the week before that on, you know, or a curated list of organizations that people could donate to that are on the front lines out there right now fighting systemic racism, anti-black racism. Um, that's not because I wrote it, not because I wrote it, but because of the fact that these are the kind of things that people need, like resources, like they want to know where to go and donate and who to who to talk to. And yeah, that's the way to leverage social media in this age. It feels strange. Like when I've donated in the past to like the ACLU or Planned Parenthood or wherever I donate each year, like I've never posted like, oh, by the way, like just donated a thousand dollars. Like it feels so uncomfortable to me to be posting where I donate yet at the same time I do know that it like has an effect when you see your friends donating it gives you ideas of okay this is a good place that I've donated and like that's how a lot of the the bail funds quickly Mm -hmm. quickly spread and like maxed out and then we're Mm -hmm. saying you know actually uh send money to these other other uh organizations um so like yeah, it's it's like a weird thing. On the one hand, I'm gonna be like, "Look at all these books I bought that I just read, and look at where I donate." It feels very weird. Yet I do want to contribute to, uh, like, I don't know, giving ideas. <laughs> I don't know where yeah. do you how do you, where do you fall, Angela? I know, and and I've well, it's the same thing where it's like I've read different views from different activists. Where I've seen certain activists that I follow are like, "I want to see you posting like the receipts for your donations, like." show people like this is what you should be promoting and then other people are like shut up and do the work yeah which i also agree with yeah um but yeah it's true like i have some of the places that i've donated i've donated because they've been shared by other people and they weren't on my radar previously so i you know that's great and i think a lot of people right now especially are sitting home they want to help and they don't know how to help and yeah for a lot of people the thing that they can do is donating um or just like even when I went to marches, I was like, I feel weird posting like a picture of myself at the march. But then I don't know. I want people to know that like, look, Barclays is like not crazy. It's safe. You should get out here. These are, you know, the vigils happening in my neighborhood. And so I don't know. Yeah, I know. it's And yeah, so I have I had friends come visit me that were that had been staying out on Long Island. Uh, and their only view of what was happening in Brooklyn was the news. Mm. And they genuinely thought that Brooklyn was like engulfed in flames. Um, oh, God. <laughs> the, and then they got there and uh, we just had this like really amazing time. It was I was it was very moving, like because yeah. not just the protests, but like just people giving out free water, free hand sanitizer, free snacks, like. It was almost, it was under these like horrible circumstances, but it was almost a glimpse of how the world should be. Um, and like the supply chain, like I had found out that I can be a part of the supply chain through a friend on Instagram posting about join me being part of the supply chain, handing out sanitizer and gloves. And like, I didn't even know that that, uh, I was like, oh, I can be a part of the supply chain. I didn't know, I yeah. didn't really understand that before. But I think, I mean, for me, so like in terms of, figuring out what to post what not to post all that stuff uh i think taking a step back definitely like you know you don't have to post it immediately like 
take some time. Think about mm-hmm. it. Think about your intention. Mm-hmm. You know, like take a breath before you post. 100% agree. And I think that's think helped me a lot. Your, think about your intention. Because like there's been a lot of people being like, mm, I see a lot of nervous white energy on the timeline right now. <laughs> and I think that's, that's the best way to describe it where it's like, oh, what do I do? Do I do this? Do I post this? And when you're feeling that way, you're not thinking clearly. You're not thinking straight. So mm-hmm. yeah, I, for me, I was like, I'm going to stop and I'm going to step back and yeah, yeah post some stuff. Didn't I, but I don't know. I'm certainly no expert. And, uh, you know, we're all, none of we're us all are, we're all trying, trying to figure best. it out. We're all just doing, as long as you're doing the work, that's it. I mean, if you choose to post about it, once again, it goes back to like on a fundamental level, like really what's your intention, you know, what's in your heart. I can't figure that out. But if you know that you're doing this for the right reason, by all means, post away. But if you're not, you'll know you're not. And other people might know you're not because they know who you are. I've seen it already. I've seen people called out in this environment, you know, and, and having to 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 reconcile the 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 part of themselves that a lot of people know versus like this one black box on Instagram that you decided to post one day. It's interesting. Yeah. The the black box in particular. You know, I woke up that morning and I woke up to a text from my mom being like, how do I post a black box? And I was <laughs> like, I was like, in that moment, I was like, this is, this is great. My mom, my elderly mom in the suburbs wants to know how to use social media for this online activism. So at 9 a.m. that morning, I was like, this is great. And then by 10 10 a.m., I was like, (laughs) oh, my God. And then by the end of the day, Tiffany Trump had posted a black square, and I was like, this is meaningless and fucked. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Oh, God. So it was a real journey throughout the day um, for, I think, a lot of people. Yeah. But uh, so, yeah, that's that's. You know what? Not the most important part of allyship. We can at least agree on that is social media. But uh, in your piece on allyship for LinkedIn, you talked about your own experience being an ally for women in your life and LGBTQ people. Um, and you said part of the journey is being uncomfortable with conversations and situations. So I want to know what is your advice to people who want to engage like our listener that we heard from earlier, but who are afraid of offending I think you have to acknowledge what a lot of people don't want to do, right? Like we all, we all about anything in our life. We don't like to admit what we don't know. Uh, We don't like to ever come from a position of perceived weakness and it's no different with this. And that means that you have to be vulnerable. It's like, it's like, you know, it's like dating or something, right? You know, you have to be okay with being rejected. You know, that's going to happen. That's a part of this entire process. Right. And it's no different when it comes to this whole conversation around race and, and, and that allyship journey is you have to establish your baseline before you go anywhere. You know, like we need to know where you're starting from and like, you have to understand that you're going to get it wrong and but you have to be willing to like have that vulnerability. Um, and a lot of people just don't naturally in their life naturally. So, because you know, we've evolved as people, like we don't want to be vulnerable. Um, but I've told anybody and I've had some conversations like this with, 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 with folks, um, which is like, well, where do I start? And it's like, well, start off by admitting what you don't know. Like, you know, Hey, I don't have that many black friends or 
I don't know what it's like to do this. And I think a lot of what we see with people is a lot of people, you know, books like White Fragility talk about it, right? It's like people get offended. They get worked up. They get angry because it's like you're attacking me. You know, I'm not racist. And it's like you're attacking me. It's like, but that's not what we're trying to trying to understand what you don't know because if you don't know what you don't like then you can't change it you know so we just need to know where you're starting from so as you're thinking about going on that journey like really um taking stock like admitting it it doesn't take much stock to take you can look around and be like you know i actually don't know any black people so that's where we start i don't know any black people you know and i don't know why and and, and then now we start to get you know we start to get somewhere it doesn't mean you need to go on in in in, in meet and try to talk to every black person you see but nonetheless now you're like maybe i don't understand this part of society maybe i don't understand these people um so yeah that's my uh, that's my advice on that is like understand where you're starting from so you can know where you need to go uh i like that that's helpful in the in the new york times charles m blow wrote a piece about allyship where he said quote we must make sure that this is a true change in the American ideology and not in activist chic summer street festival for people who have been cooped up for months. Mm. What can people do to continue this conversation and uh, make sure that it doesn't, doesn't stop? Wow. That's a, that's a good one. And I think that's the one that a lot of us keeps a lot of us nervous. It's like whether or not this is going to last. You know, we we're seeing some of the longest protests. We we haven't seen protests like this in the United States since like '68, and at this scale and at this, you know, with with this time, you know, this just they've lasted so long. I think um, people are just going to really have to stick with it. This can't be a flash in the pan. And, and as a black person, I hope it doesn't i really don't have an answer for that and i wish i wish i did because i think all of us would would certainly apply it if we did but i think it's like we can't go back to whatever normal was you know we start to see the economy open and things open up i hope people don't just default back to their original positions right brunch on saturdays you know uh willful ignorance it's just you got to really keep the pedal to the metal as it relates to this because it's going to benefit everybody. So the short of it is I don't have an answer, but if anybody does, I would love to hear it because I don't want to see this end. I want this momentum to be to be kept, you know, and I don't want it to be as a result of another black man or a black woman or a brown person being killed on television or on camera, on social media for us to say, oh, yeah, another one that we can't let up. Like we shouldn't have to have a bunch of martyrs, Eric Garner's, George Floyd's, Breonna Taylor's. Sandra Bland before we, you know, for us to keep going, these aren't, this, this shouldn't be fuel. The system itself should be a fuel for us to keep going and fighting injustices. So because a lot of your activism is within the workplace, I want to, for our last question, I kind of want to talk about uh, Mm -hmm. how to be an ally at work. Um, So I guess I want to first start off by saying, what would you say are some of the most common ways that or common ways that black people experience racism in the workplace interesting um or even microaggressions yeah wow i'm sure it's it's most a lot of microaggressions it's a lot of what you experience in the regular world whether it be some comment about being you know you know threatened or or asking somebody can you touch their hair it can it can be any number of things like that that we all see in or outside of the workplace, but as it relates to the workplace and 
and, um, you know, being a good ally in the workplace, promoting black people, hiring black people, bringing black people into your world, your professional world, your network in a meaningful way, really building community. Those are ways that you can be an active and really good ally in the workplace and really doing the work and calling out things when you see they're wrong. When you see someone being, you know, uh, when, when a hiring manager doesn't have a good reason for why they're not hiring someone because they're not a culture fit. Or when you see someone being passed over for a promotion, there's no good reason why, you know, it goes back to really like, you know, doing that work and you got to call that kind of stuff out and that stuff is uncomfortable, but you have to be able to do it. You know, I think the workplace as one of the places that could play such a pivotal role in transforming society and transforming our lives, um, you know, the things that you do there can, I mean, you could really change someone in their whole family's life and their whole trajectory, you know, and there's been a lot of people who've had the, the rug pulled from under them and the door slammed in their face for, you know, the color of their skin. And no one could actually tell you the reason why though. Um, and that kind of stuff has a, has a, has a huge and detrimental effect. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's what I think. I think in terms of the allyship piece, like, if you can really get out there and really advocate for, for black people and really, you know, take someone in and mentor them and help them grow and call out stuff we see it's wrong. Like those are ways to really move the needle in the workplace in a meaningful way and be a good ally. Cool. That's great. That's great. Um, We're in awe of all the work you do every day. You're fighting the fight. Yeah, and thank you for thank you. thank you for coming on this show. I mean, we're gonna talk some more, but uh, <laughs> yeah. that concludes the allyship portion. Yeah. And uh, I really, I really appreciate you sharing your wisdom, Eric, and your experience and your life experience. Um, thank you. And, yeah, it's uh, we appreciate it. I appreciate you both for uh, for first of all for having this conversation, uh, for inviting me to be part of it. You know, but this should help you guys, and I know you will. And I hope your listeners and everybody does like just just keep having these conversations. Don't let this moment pass us by. Don't let it be in vain. Like just keep on doing the work, keep on having these uncomfortable conversations, and uh, let's get better as a world. Amen. Um, guys, that is it for this week's This Is Why podcast. Thank you so much to our guest Eric Abrego. Um, Eric, any last things you want to add? Any plugs where people can find you? Anything else that we didn't ask that you want to add here? Yeah, no, I think, uh, first of all, like I said, thank you guys for, for having me. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate you guys just creating the space for this kind of conversation. And let's just keep it going. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn, Eric Abrego, simple enough. Um, and yeah, I mean, just in terms of advice, just keep doing the work, you know, be comfortable with being uncomfortable. That's the way you'll do better. Thank you, Eric. It's yes. great to talk to you. I know. Thank you. Um, plug for ourselves, I guess. Check out our book. This is why you're single. Um, my new book, Cinderella and the Glass Ceiling and Other Feminist Fairy Tales. They're available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and we very much encourage you to try to find them at your local indie bookstores. If they don't have them, you can call your local indie bookstores and ask, and they'll usually order them for you. So please support them. Yes, and you can get hooked up with discounts from all of our sponsors. 
For a full list of sponsors in the code, check out our podcast page on thisiswhythepodcast.com. We are also on social, so you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at thisiswhypodcast. Please like and subscribe on iTunes. And thank you for listening. to next week for a whole new show. Bye. Bye. This is why, this is why. Pop culture, politics, friendship, dating, work, parenting, news. This is why. The podcast. That was a HeadGum Podcast.